Welcome to the Team of a Lifetime show. This podcast is all about helping you propel your team's performance to an extraordinary level. I'm Sally Love, your host of the Team of a Lifetime show. Tune in as my expert guests and I tackle the tough challenges teams have to overcome to achieve success. You'll get insight, powerful proven practices, and the inspiration you need to lead effectively, build an amazing team culture, and deliver results that people didn't even believe were possible. Let's get started. I want to introduce you to my guest, Josh Rowan. Welcome, Josh. Well, it's an honor to join you, Sally, and I look forward to a great conversation today and hopefully uh, some uplifting things to talk about for your, for your listeners. I'm currently serving as the engineering director for our, our global business unit, which is focused on lithium. And um, I work for Abramall Corporation. And, and Abramall Corporation has a couple different business lines. And one of our most exciting is, is lithium. Um, as most people will be aware who listen to this, um, lithium is used in a, a variety of applications. And it's a fast-growing market, especially when one considers the, the future for electric vehicles, uh, both here in the U.S. and around the world. And so we're pretty proud that we have some of the best uh, assets, some of the best resource bases in the world, some great people working on how we convert those uh, into lithium products, which ultimately go into to batteries and other applications. And uh, really excited about the future ahead. Uh, look after, currently look after a portfolio uh, within that space. And I've got teams of people who are, who are part of that. And they work in Chile, work in the US, in Germany, and in China, and uh, soon to be Australia once we have uh, that asset up and up and running as we've uh, said we will uh, next year. So a uh, very exciting times. I've been around capital projects for um, somewhere past 15 years now. And um, prior to, to coming into the, the uh, industry, I was in the, was in the military for uh, three or four years. Um, and uh, yeah, excited to, to be in this role and to be uh, uh, looking after teams and trying to deliver uh, world-class projects. So, what branch of the military were you in? I was in the army. Um, I, I I joined the army um, out of college. Uh, my original plan. I'm not a de- I'm not a degreed engineer by background, which most people don't know. You'd sort of hear the title of uh, engineering director, and you think, "Geez, the guy must be an engineer," but I'm not. Um, I I sort of came to doing this in a in a kind of a unique way, I would say. Um, my plan in um, coming out of university a long time ago now was. Um, it was focused more on economics and I was going to go to law school and uh, represent family farmers. That's what, that was my passion. I, I grew up in a relatively uh, rural area. And uh, so my, my passion was really around um, you know, farming and rural farming and, that, and those types of things. And um, one of these ev- events came along, which I sort of describe as life shaping. And uh, we now know it as nine 11. And um, I just sort of pivoted to that point and decided that I was going to go in the military. And um, I'd had a history of people in my family going in the military. And um, so I, I went and did some training, did a little bit extra schooling, uh, ultimately joined the military and um, uh, was deployed overseas for about 18 months. And somewhere along the way, also spent a bit of time after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we, were, we were staged in New Orleans providing uh, relief and support after the hurricane and the, and the horrific flooding that was, uh, that was in New Orleans. So interesting experiences. And after doing that, I uh, left the military and, and started working in the capital, capital project space. 
What are some of the ways that being in the military prepared you for the role that you have now of leading big teams on capital projects? Yeah, I think I think principally there's a couple things that make people effective in the military, probably things that make people effective in business. Um, and and I, I guess the, the lessons that I've sort of learned along the way are, are negotiation. One of the things people don't probably recognize about the military, especially being in combat overseas, is that you're working with a variety of people. And in many cases, um, some people who are not necessarily friendly to work that you're doing, and you can't, uh, you can't force them to do things. Uh, the way that you can get them to, to uh, buy into what you're trying to do is by, by negotiation, by talking, by listening, by understanding. And principally, that translates to business because a lot of what we do, very little in business can we make decisions on our own. I suppose if you're the CEO of the board, you can do that. But just about everybody else in the company uh, really has to work with people, negotiate with people to get buy-in, to get support, and to get endorsement for ideas and, and initiatives. So I would say that's one. Um, I would say that the other big lesson for me really was teamwork. And um, very little you accomplish in the military as an individual person. Um, very little do you accomplish as, uh, in, in the business world as, a, as an individual contributor. Most of your success or failure really depends on the people around you. And so your ability to, to be a good teammate, to work, to support, uh, to hold each other accountable and deliver results for me, that dates all the way back to the uh, all the way back to the military. Interestingly enough, there's a probably a side story I'd tell, which is um, I went in the military as an officer, and the people that you lead in the military usually have a significant amount of experience uh, in that particular field, and so you're you're assigned what they call a non-commissioned officer, and he he or she, and he in this case is really the person who has been running the unit for a long, long time. And, and what you find is that the officers come and go. Uh, they take different jobs, they take different assignments, and the NCOs do that, but to a lesser degree. And so I'll never forget on my, my first day after having done this uh, training, I showed up to my new unit and moved, moved my, my wife and new area and showed up to the unit. It was my, my first day being there. And I sort of came in and I said, okay, here's all the things that we're going to do to be successful. And I'll, I'll never forget the, the NCO said, uh, hey, sir, can we, can we talk uh, for a second? So I said, yeah, absolutely. So we went off and he said, um, let's just get one thing straight. You're, you're in charge here, but I've been doing this a long time. And uh, you might want to listen to what I have to say. And it was a real, it was a real a learning moment for me because I realized that uh, I knew very little about what I was saying. Uh, really, I had read things in books and I had received training. But the reality was these folks had been doing this for a long, long time, much longer than I'd even thought about it. And I suppose the higher up that you get in the business or capital project world, what you find is in that in many ways, you're what I might call an unfinished leader, which really means that you, you probably don't know as much as the people that are actually working within your organization. And so it requires a degree of humility, a curiosity to ask questions, and a, a willingness to understand that there's probably a lot of people in your organization that know a lot. And uh, your secret is to tap into that and figure out how to help make them successful. I'm curious, um, after that military experience of, of this guy calling you up short, what did you do to develop and grow as a leader? And what do you continue to do? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that I, I do, which just sounds pretty basic, I guess, but um, I ask a lot of questions. And sometimes people are sort of intimidated around why is, why is a leader, why, why is my leader asking me so many questions? Do you think I'm doing something wrong or is he not happy with my performance? And so what I try to tell people 
um, as I take new roles, as I step into new projects and new organizations is that I ask questions, but I truly ask questions because I want to learn and I want to understand. You know, that's my method of, of absorbing information. I, the other thing I would say is uh, I'm a prolific reader and I like reading lots of things. And I'm, I've, I've, most, I've spent most of my career in um, sort of in what we think of as sort of industrial mega projects, you know, things in oil and gas and things in mining and, and things in utilities and, and things in um, heavy manufacturing and those kinds of spaces. But I like to read a lot about perspectives from different industries and different um, types of application. And I've come to believe that really great leaders read a large volume of things. And a lot of what they read doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the stuff that they're doing in the day-to-day. And that really good leaders can extract from those things mental models, which they can apply to situations that they might find themselves in on any given day. And uh, you certainly see that in the performance, I think, of CEOs and, and other, other senior leaders in companies, their ability to quickly identify mental models uh, that work uh, for certain challenges and certain circumstances that they're in. Is there a particular person, a particular leader that you, you look back on and, and think, I sure am glad I had the opportunity to work with this person because this person was a great leader and I grew and I developed working with this person? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, Sally. I um, am someone that you and I both know well. I was, I was very fortunate in my life that um, I had the opportunity to work with a gentleman by the name of Howard Irwin, and he was a project manager, um, and I was the controls manager for a portfolio of things, and he was one of the project managers in the, in the portfolio. And several of the other projects in the portfolio were not going well and ultimately didn't necessarily have great outcomes. But one of the things that uh, Howard's project uh, did, it was one of the few success stories in the portfolio at the time. It the project finished um, very much ahead of schedule, uh, very much under budget. The asset performed exactly as it was supposed to. Incredible safety performance on the project. I mean, there were, there were no major safety incidents, only a couple minor ones, as I recall. And um, one of the things that I really learned from Howard was how important aligning your teams is. You know, and so I, I was, um, this is a point many years ago, and, and I I suppose I thought at the time that those kinds of things were really sort of a waste of time. And, you know, alignment was really just sort of a euphemism for team building. And the reality of it is that um, most projects are done via a combination of lots of different people. And the odds are that those people probably come from a number of different backgrounds. And in today's world, they probably haven't worked together before. If they have, it's probably in a limited capacity. They probably represent a number of different organizations. If we think about capital projects, you know, I suppose that you at least have two entities involved and likely more. You've at least got an owner and a contractor. And you probably have any number of um, equipment or, or uh, material manufacturers. You probably have regulatory people. You probably have legal people. There's a whole host of people who, who come and go on a project. And aligning people not just once, but over and over and over again and reminding people why they're there and, and what the main objectives are really goes a long way. And so I learned a lot from Howard in that way. And the other thing I would say that I learned from Howard was really a, an ability to, to listen and, and know people who are working on your projects. And he was much better at it than I am. I, I still struggle to to spend time really getting to know people. I find the 
the hours in the day just seem like there's less and less of them. And so it becomes a challenge to do it. It's still important. But and I, I was going through a period in my life where I was living away from my family. They were, they were living in Houston at the time and I was living away working on the project and didn't get to see them as much as I wanted. And I had young kids at the time. And, and so I was struggling with that. And my brother uh, died unexpectedly while I was working on the project. And I just remember that Howard and, and a number of other people really were really instrumental in that time and really helping me to sort of work through that and sort of acknowledge it was okay to be human for a little bit and then find ways that I could sort of refocus my energy and, and my understanding. So yeah, Howard was fantastic and um, just, a, just a, a great man, a great project leader uh, and, a, and just a great man, I would say too. So. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. He is a great manager and a, a great human being. I, I think I need to have him on the podcast. Yeah, so. he would be he would be a great guest. He'd be better than me, so you should see if you can uh, round him up for sure. I, I will I'll work on getting Howard on here. So you just mentioned, Josh, that while you were working uh, with Howard, that your brother died. And when I think about that situation with your brother, I, I think about you, I imagine you being at a turning point. And just wondering, okay, what do we do now? How do we go forward? Um, would you say that that was definitely one of the turning points in your life? Yeah, I would. I would say I've probably had a couple of turning points, but I would say for me that was probably the most most consequential turning point. You know, my my brother was um, several years younger than me. He, you know, was, was a very healthy person, lived a very healthy lifestyle. It was just really sort of starting to come into his own, you know, professional situation and, and personal relationship situations, and and unfortunately, he was um, he was killed in a hot air balloon crash, and it was the it was um, the largest hot air balloon crash in in history. So you, you know, folks can look it up, and um, it was a complete surprise, and it was something that no one no one anticipated it wasn't a it wasn't a disease it wasn't something he'd had a while it was he woke up one morning with him and his um his wife and they were went on a hot air balloon experience that was uh, given to them as a gift uh, at their wedding and it was foggy and the balloon uh, pilot wasn't operating responsibly and uh, hit a power line and that was it and just remember the shock of it and you know probably even still the pain to this day thinking about it what I would say is, as a turning point, it does remind you that maybe it's not as significant, but everybody has a personal struggle. Most people that you're meeting are struggling through something. Maybe it's not as consequential as losing a, a loved one, or maybe it is, or maybe there's struggles at home, or maybe there's, you know, maybe there's struggles with their children, or struggles with their aging parents, or, uh, or a whole host of things. It reminds you to sort of give people some grace, I think, in that people are, are struggling sometimes and we have to extend to them some grace, which we would hope would be extended to us. And in my Howard story and, and the, the folks that were, were there at Flint Hills, that was certainly their approach. It was a lot of grace. And I made a fair number of mistakes, which I wouldn't have made had that not happened, but they were graceful and they let me keep going knowing that, um, you know, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't performing at the top of my game for a whole host of reasons. I, I think the other thing I, I took away from it is work is important, you know, and what we do is important stuff. And I certainly wouldn't do it if I didn't find some joy out of it. But work is just work at the end of the day. And, and I, I, think, it, I think it reminds you that there are 
reasons that we get up in the morning and we do these kinds of things. And, and so connecting with those things sort of, sort of fills your bucket, gives you some, some focus on why it is you go and, and do these types of things. You know, why we get up and motivate ourselves so hard sometime in the morning to try to have successful projects and successful careers and, and all the like. So. so I can't, I really cannot imagine what that shock of losing your brother was like. I, I'm curious, how did you push through that? Um, maybe, maybe push through it. I, I wouldn't necessarily use those words. I, I, I would say that as a person of faith, I would say that it wasn't on my own. That was probably the most important uh, thing that I would offer. Um, and, and, you know, I know faith means different things to different people, but, but as a person of faith, that was, that was a starting point for me. And that, that was a source of strength. You know, I would say that I was very blessed to have a lot of, a lot of family and friends around to support during that time, a lot of understanding coworkers. I, I guess, you know, when I, when I was, was telling someone about it after it had happened, they said something to me. I think it's a famous quote from somebody, but I can't remember who said it. And it just said, sometimes in life, a man's got to be tougher than the timber he's cutting. And I guess what I would say is, is that was some pretty tough timber. So, so you, you have to be tough. You have to, sometimes life gives you things which aren't fair. They aren't right. There's no understanding for them. You can't, you can't come to a rational, as engineering-minded person, you can't come to a reason, a formula why something was the way that it was. Sometimes things happen and sometimes things aren't fair. And, and sometimes the only thing you can do is to be resolute and, um, and try to be tougher than the timber that you're cutting, I guess. I've, I've never heard that expression and I really like it. Thank you for sharing that. How do you think attitude impacts a person's success or does it? No, it's a great question. You read on different materials and things that the the attitude is one of the few things in life that you can actually control. And um, that's true. How we respond to situations, uh, both good and bad, that is completely within our control. Um, more often than not, I'm finding as I'm getting older that you don't actually control much of anything. You don't actually control you know, your family situation. You don't actually control your job. You know, as a projects person, I probably would should never admit this, but Sometimes you can't even control your own project. Stuff just happens that's completely beyond your control and beyond the frame of good risk mitigation. And so, you know, what I would say is how you respond to that really says a lot about, about you, about you as a leader, about you as a person. You know, I've certainly, I've certainly seen my fair share of people in life who, you know, in the, in the, in the projects arena where people bring them bad news and their immediate reaction is to, uh, sort of throw a temper tantrum and uh, look for people to blame or look for people to fire or what have you. You know, and sometimes you have to make, you know, decisions with people which are tough. But I do think how you react to that and how you think through the problems and how you try to identify solutions to me represents the difference between good project people and not so good project people. Not so good project people, things go different than the plan that they had at the outset. And their focus becomes on the, the problem itself, you know, what happened and why it wasn't fair. And, you know, that it's not, you know, that it's, this, is a, this is unforeseen and it's not my fault. And so it becomes really about the problem and how I feel about the problem. Where I think a person who is a 
is a, is a good project person with the right attitude then says, okay, this wasn't our plan, but now we, now we need a different plan. And how do we think about that? And how do we have the right attitude so that we can, we can shift gears and, and try to still be successful despite the obstacles that we're going to have along the way? And that's probably true in life. And it's probably true in business, how you, how you react to that, how you think through that, um, how mentally resilient you are. Those, those are things which, which you control. Those are, those are your attitudes. Yes, absolutely. They are. So one last question. What are you teaching your kids, your young boys, about leadership? That's a great question. One of the things I've tried really hard to instill in my, in my children is a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. And I think people think that um, being an entrepreneur always means working for yourself. Um, that's, that's true in some ways. But I think you can have an entrepreneurial spirit and still be an employee, still be a member of a corporation. Um, and you can think about it in terms of you know, how do I steward the, the money that the company provides uh, for capital projects? You know, we're, you know, within the group that I'm, I'm leading, you know, we've been given a certain amount of money and given certain amounts of money every year. And we have to use that money to find the best projects that we can do for the company. And we have to find a way to, and if we can do that, then we'll create a competitive advantage for our company. And so that requires an entrepreneurial spirit. It requires me to treat a dollar from the corporation as if it was my own dollar. Um, so I work really hard to try to, to try to teach my children to you know, have a sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, to take personal responsibility for results and for outcomes. One of the ways we, we recently tried to do that, there's a, our, our neighborhood pool uh, reopened um, after COVID and, and a couple of other measures where the pool reopened. But one of the stipulations with those is, was that they would not have a, they wouldn't open the snack bars. They wouldn't serve out of the snack bars. So it was closed for the summer. Um, and my kids uh, decided that uh, that was a good opportunity for them to, um, to get out and sell snacks and drinks and ice cream on break at the pool says so a timed break where the lifeguards rotate and, and test the chemicals and these things. And so they set up a little table and a little cooler and they raised money and we gave, we gave part of the money to the pool at the end of the summer. And, um, and so, but it was a great way for them to sort of learn that lesson and the, the value of hard work, the value of having an entrepreneurial spirit and, and, um, you know, and, and being, you know, productive and, and, and giving back uh, when you're, when you're fortunate. So they're, they're, as I say, they're going to give a portion of their money back to the pool, which is the right thing to do. And um, so that was that was something recently that we did to sort of work with our kids to to be able to um, to learn some of those some of those different different lessons. But yeah, I, I think I, I think passing it down to my kids is is uh, something that's a real focus for me, and making sure that um, you know they they you know, and they also understand that I think that. But there's going to be things that happen in life that are difficult things, you know, and those, those difficult things really test out what you're made of and how you, how you handle them and how you keep, uh, how you keep moving forward, even when uh, things aren't fair, even when uh, it doesn't work out according to plan. And so that's what we're working on teaching them. That's a great question. That, well, your answer is fabulous, and I, I'm thrilled to hear that you're doing that. So you just reminded me of something else. When we got started, you were talking about you came from a family of farmers, and you were planning to be kind of in that business, but you are going to be in that business a little bit, right? Yeah, so I've got, I, have, I have some um, land, which I, I, 
purchased from family and and we're we're starting a pecan orchard so we're, we're somewhere in the middle of our journey to start a pecan orchard and um it's uh it's been really good it's about it's about 60 acres and um these pecan trees were planted by my uncle's father uh many many years ago so most of the trees are sort of 50 60 years old and the orchard had been overgrown and and uh, the area was, it wasn't, you know, it needed some work. And so we've gone in and we've cleaned it up and we've now kind of got the trees in rows and we're getting close to where we're going to start to be able to apply the right fertilizers and these kinds of things. I don't know that we'll make the, I don't know that we'll make the harvest for this year, but we're going to try to see if we can get our first pecan harvest next year. That's what we're, uh, that's what we're shooting for. And uh, interestingly enough, my, on the orchard, this is sort of uh, how you respond to things and attitude, I suppose. I had a, I had a tornado come through uh, a couple months ago and it right after I had cleared out the orchard and it sort of knocked out 50 or so trees. So a pretty good chunk of these really large trees got taken out and just literally ripped out of the ground. And, and so when I went and looked at it, it was just, it was just gut wrenching. And, um, and I sort of was, was really discouraged. I thought we're really trying to get the orchard going and here mother nature's throwing me a curveball with the tornado. But uh, that's okay. So we've been able to to take the trees, and we've been able to um, to to sell the wood to someone, and um, they're going to make they're going to they're uh, this pecan wood. They're going to make furniture out of it. So uh, we're going to make we're going to make do something positive with it after all. So again, maybe that's a point on attitude. You uh, can't control the tornado, but I can control what I do after the tornado. So um, yeah, that, that's our that's our orchard. Oh, that's great. Are you going to get some of the furniture that's made from that wood? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've gotten, we've gotten some of it set aside. So the, the way they do is sort of cut the bigger pieces of wood and then uh, they use those and that's what they use in the production of some of the furniture. So yeah, we've, we've set some of it aside. So we'll, we'll make, uh, eventually we're going to try to build a little ranch house out there. But yeah, that'll be, our, it'll be some furniture for our ranch house once we can get that going. Oh, cool. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much, Josh, for, for having this conversation with me today. As always, you encourage me, you inspire me, and I know that our listeners will also be an in- encouraged and inspired by your message. I appreciate that, Sally. I hope, hope everybody hangs in there, and uh, we'll make it through COVID, and there, there'll be a brighter day tomorrow. As we wrap up today, will you do something for me? Will you share this episode with somebody else so that they can benefit from it too? And if you're really serious about creating an exceptional team, just reach out to me at sallyloveinspires.com and we'll talk about how my team success formula can help you transform your team into the team of a lifetime. I'll be back with another episode soon. Be sure to follow or subscribe so that you don't miss those future episodes.